Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves from the 3CR studios in Melbourne and via podcast. And thanks to Sally from Out of the Pan. Uh, make sure you tune in next week at 12pm for Out of the Pan, all things pansexual issues. Um, a great show as always. Thanks, Sally. Today, we're joined by Dr. Matthew Silinsk, a postdoctoral research associate in the ICON Science Research Group at RMIT. Matthew studied and worked all over the world, um, including the US, West Africa and the UK. So it brings a really um, diverse perspective. Matthew does research into conservation psychology and currently works on projects including evaluating the social dimensions of private land conservation, biodiversity footprints analysis, conservation behavioral change and predictive modeling of human behavior. Additionally, Matthew co-leads the website keeptothepath.com, which aims to make research about human behavior more accessible to all who are interested in applying to promote nature conservation and certainly one worth checking out. So I'll um, put a, a link to that in the show notes if you're interested in looking that up, folks. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke to Professor Roth, Hank, uh, uh, Hank Rothgerber on FOS about the meat-related cognitive dissonance framework that they developed. I tweeted about the show and Matthew replied with a link to a paper that they've recently had published. And it's about what interventions are likely to have the biggest impact on reducing the consumption of cow flesh based on um, uh, expertise. Uh, elicitation from expertise. And I thought it was a really great topic to follow up on our discussion with Hank. And Matthew was kind enough to join us on the show today. So thank you very much for joining us, Matthew. Thank I'm really you. looking forward to talking about your paper. It was yeah, a thanks. great read, actually. Oh, great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And thanks for having me, Adam. Really yeah, no it. worries. Uh, and I just wanted to, wanted to start with, um, why bring conservation psychology and animal agriculture together? Why yeah. do they come together? Well, for me, one, I should also point out that I'm not a conservation psychologist. I am, uh, my background and training is in interdisciplinary conservation science. And so I'm very much interested in bridging psychology into conservation. And I guess that is a lead into bridging, uh, uh, sorry, psychology into, uh, uh, yeah, agriculture as well. And for me, um, so a lot of my background is, is working in productive and amenity rural landscapes, whether it's here in Australia or in South Africa and the U.S. Um, and I was, yeah, really interested in why people participate in conservation programs in those areas. But then thinking where most of the impact lies for, for biodiversity and for climate change, and we have to really reflect on urban residents as well, and especially um, urban residents are, are potentially less connected to those biodiversity issues. And so I was really keen on identifying what behaviors to change within the urban population, what, 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 what could we prioritize uh, in terms of the most effective behaviors or most effective actions an individual could take. 
And that kind of led me on this path is like, well, let's find that out. Let's take a look at where, you know, what uh, individual actions, everyday actions have the largest footprints in terms of biodiversity, in terms of uh, carbon emissions. And of course, that led me to animal, agri animal agriculture, specifically beef consumption. Yeah. Um, and if you look at uh, the World Resources Institute, WRI, um, they have some great resources on why beef is demonstrably the most impactful uh, uh, animal protein, um, agricultural product that exists. And here's a great, I found it to be a great way to start thinking about, well, here's an entry point into changing our everyday impact on biodiversity. And then what I found was that conservation hadn't really focused on this topic as much. Um, we're a bit separated from it. We're always really kind of focusing in on that impact side. And so in, in developing country or emerging economies, uh, thinking about protecting wildlife and human wildlife conflict without necessarily thinking about the consumption uh, that we do in, uh, the in the developed world and uh, uh, established economies, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to, later on in the show, I'd love to tease out that a little bit more. Um, but before we do that, I'd love to first start with uh, your paper. So can you tell us a little bit about, about this paper? And I'll give the, I'll give the title. Um, I'll also include a note in the, in the show notes or a link in the show notes for those who are interested. Um, it's in Conservation Letters and it's called, We Have a Stake in It, Eliciting Interventions to Reduce Beef Consumption and Its Impact on Biodiversity. So can you tell us um, a little bit about the paper? Like what motivated you to do the paper? What is it and, um, and why did you do it? So like I said, we went down this path of prioritizing individual actions to reduce individual impact on biodiversity. And the next step or the next logical step for me was, well, can we prioritize the strategies or, or the interventions that would reduce uh, or change those behaviors? And so, and again, in reflecting on that conservation hasn't had as much of a, a kind of a, a yeah, uh, impact in this area or engagement in this area, uh, we wanted to look to other disciplines, whether it was uh, health uh, disciplines or food psychology. Um, for instance, you had uh, 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 Gerber on, uh, Hank Rothgerber on your show uh, a couple weeks ago. And um, yeah, somebody like that would have a lot of knowledge about how to, or what, what motivates individuals to change their behaviors in terms of uh, reducing meat consumption and, and beef consumption, but also uh, potentially how to do that. Um, and how do that do that more effectively? So we gathered a number of, of individuals uh, to engage them and elicit different strategies about how to reduce beef consumption. And we were focused specifically on beef consumption because again, um, out of the other animal products, uh, that has the largest uh, impact on biodiversity specifically. And the, these, were, these individuals were experts in their, their field of research um, that, that, around this, this idea of uh, consumption of animal flesh, particularly right. beef. Yep. Yeah, so we, we got together uh, uh, 16 individuals uh, mm. from those different disciplines, uh, from uh, yeah, food psychology, as I mentioned, health, uh, uh, environmental psychology, uh, uh, consumer psychology, those type of, mm. of, of, of disciplines, and really wanted to, one, gain an understanding of what type of interventions are out there or what type of interventions they think could potentially work to reduce beef consumption, either ones that they've kind of dreamt about implementing or they've been involved in implementing themselves. Um, and then 
got them to categorize what did they think were the most effective uh, in terms of changing behavior, but also the most feasible in undertaking. So mm. by feasibility, I mean uh, in terms of the cost of the intervention, but also the political and social feasibility. Obviously, um, yeah, we could potentially limit or the, the amount of animal protein that's consumed out there, but that probably would not be politically mm. feasible. So we were looking for real tangible solutions that we could potentially implement in the next 10 years. And how was, how was feasibility and effectiveness um, sort of measured? Was this just a, a sort of whether a uh, participant indicated, I think it's pretty feasible, I think it's pretty effective? What was the actual yeah, way so that you got that so out? With the expert elicitation process, uh, we used a Delphi policy, a policy Delphi, excuse me, structured elicitation. So mm. we got them to think about those interventions and then together comment and critique those interventions. So it's a very mm. qualitative uh, process. And so what we're looking for is multiple rounds of consideration, yep. um, thinking about the, what would be required to implement those policies, what are some of the challenges towards those policies, um, and then at the end of the elicitation, uh, my colleagues and I went through and thematically analyzed uh, some of the discussion points around those, those different interventions. And, and that, so for the audience, thematically analyzing means that there's, you might um, identify common themes that are coming through in the language or the text that's um, been, been written, and you um, code the text with these different themes. So you might find someone saying, okay, we need to, um, get uh, meat reduced in institutions like universities. If that happens across multiple, multiple um, descriptions or suggestions, then that would be a theme that you would code. And this, this is a, it's quite a, it's quite a um, challenging way of, of, of doing research. It takes a lot of time, but you get some really great stuff out of it. Um, this qualitative uh, mode of research, it's, it's, it's quite deep. You get a lot of depth in it. Yeah, and that's, and that's right. And especially for, uh, in areas which haven't been as investigated as fully as they should be and thinking about, well, you know, we can't necessarily quantify the, and, uh, the, the effectiveness and the feasibility, but can we at least qualitatively address these issues? And, uh, and that's what we did. And then we came up, um, we didn't necessarily rank the, the interventions, but we listed those interventions within the article and then some of the really key discussion points around those interventions, why they would be feasible or why not uh, and why they're effective or potentially why they wouldn't be effective. And so we came up with a very kind of broad uh, uh, yeah, list of different interventions, quite diverse in their nature, uh, some targeting individual consumption towards like, you know, uh, through cooking classes and, and learning in, in schools uh, to uh, more structural uh, policy interventions as well um, from both the government side, but also in uh, through private industry, like uh, food service companies. Mm, and and um, I think we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit um, more detail. Uh, but before we get to that, I wondered, I, I, I really appreciated that you also included in this list, um, sort of the critiques and the issues that experts had with certain suggestions. Um, do you want to speak a little bit about that? It seemed like there were some different um, approaches to this, this stuff coming through from the different experts. Yeah, I think there were some disciplinary divides and some people uh, were coming from an animal ethics kind of uh, precision 
um, and really focused in on um, kind of wanting to eliminate meat consumption fully. Um, and others came from a, a, you know, I would describe it as a, uh, a more pragmatic uh, approach where we're just trying to reduce meat consumption uh, more, you know, kind of generally across the population. We understand that people bring different value structures uh, to, to this challenge. And I would, so I would, I, I always, um, I always shirk at the pragmatic um, <laughs> label. It's like, yeah, within your value structure, it's pragmatic, but within my value structure, not necessarily pragmatic. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and so, but also respecting all of those opinions is so important, mm, especially. I appreciated that. That was really your, nice. Yep. You want to get the, the best out of your experts and you want to respect um, those positions as well. And so, um, there was some tension there in terms of suggesting things like flexitarianism. Mm. Um, uh, so flexitarianism is a, a, a really broadening movement within consumers thinking about, well, we can reduce our, our meat consumption uh, and specifically beef consumption, reduce, uh, you know, reduce animal cruelty, reduce our impact on the environment, but still be able to continue uh, to once in a while uh, to eat meat. And that is seemingly taking off, but also um, there was some pushback within the elicitation. Well, by encouraging flexitarianism, we are uh, making it acceptable to eat meat. And, and mm. that's something that some of those researchers and those scientists and experts that participated in the, in the expert elicitation did not want. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's still a, a um, I feel like it's a sort of untested hypothesis as well like does does that um actually lead to longer term uh, continuation of meat consumption versus um a more rapid transition to a to removing meat from our our systems um, yeah. one 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 um part of the the study that i thought was quite interesting is you grouped the different um suggestions into a you classified them by category of factors. So yeah. there's a number of factors that we use in terms of um, cog cognitive interventions or psychological interventions, um, or you might call them something else uh, that, that influence our behaviors. And you, it was interesting to see that a lot of the interventions that were suggested fell into things like knowledge and skills, which I think, right. yeah, we've done for decades. And yeah. is it really going to be useful? Or is it, is it really um, going to keep on doing things? Food, environment, um, values and attitudes. But one that was right down the bottom of the list, which was interesting, um, given our discussion with Hank a couple of weeks ago, mm. was around emotions and cognitive dissonance. Yeah. And sort of, I feel like, do, don't we need a front load sort of the cognitive dissonance and then bring in the other stuff as well? I, I'm not sure how, like, I don't know how the behavioural models actually work, but if people are just sort of instantly blocking off um, or, or experiencing cognitive dissonance and then using meat-related cognitive dissonance to deny or, um, or psychologically assuage their, sure. their consumption. How can we get to knowledge and skills actually impacting? I'm not sure. Like it's a yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I, I, would, make, I would also make the point that um, there's some research recently that really demonstrates that people do not know that um, 
they, they still lack the knowledge of, of the oh, food okay. systems yeah. and, and how they impact and the fact that beef and meat consumption is bad for the environment. There is a real lack of knowledge there. Some uh, research, I think by Neff et al. 2018 uh, mm. that came out obviously a couple of years ago. So um, there is still that, that knowledge and skills and, and, and yep. cooking. People don't yeah, know how cooking. to cook yeah. vegetarian meals. And, yep. Self-efficacy, uh, for sure. Yeah, self-efficacy uh, certainly uh, factors in there. Um, mm. and, there are, and a lot of this is tied together. Mm. And so, you know, going down a path, everybody's, you know, or some, uh, the people that are, are actively trying to reduce their meat consumption or become vegetarian or vegan are on a path. And those yep. paths are longer or shorter um, and each one of these factors, and that's why I think that um, that Stoll Kleeman paper is so important, is looking at uh, and and the papers that those are based on is looking at all those factors and how they contribute to somebody's decisions in terms of of, yeah. of reducing their beef consumption or, or specifically meat consumption. Yeah. And when you when you mention that people's knowledge isn't actually that great, it, it's actually quite obvious just through experience speaking with people because we are so distant from the meat production. And the, the meat production industry really do um, distance us. So I've got a very intelligent friend, master's degree, having a conversation with them, thought that cows were perpetually providing milk and they didn't need to get pregnant to do that. And they're a scientist. You know, they work at the EPA. It's like we're so far away from this information. We, we sort of think what is convenient to our, for our behaviours. Yeah. Yeah, just um, reinforcing that and, and, and not questioning it. And that's where I think, you know, these these um, what you were uh, talking about last week with Hank, that uh, really forcing people to engage that cognitive dissonance is a, is an important part of this process. Mm. And on, on that point, I, that's great. I think after the, um, we'll have a quick break after the break, we'll get into some of those specific um, uh, interventions that you identified, which I think are really important to, to think about. And so we're going to go to a song. Uh, we're going to go to a song by Ali Farka Torre. Uh, called Ruby and um, Matthew suggested this song. Is is there any uh, reason behind this song? Is it just one that you love? Uh, so Tamana Jabate is also on that uh, track, and they yeah, there are two amazing uh, uh, artists. And um, I used to live in in West Africa in the Gambia, but they're from Mali. But we listen to a lot of their music there. So uh, yeah, a, a... here it is. Thank you. 
very interesting how quickly they adopt socialist principles to protect a capitalist framework when it's not working. This has shown that they can chuck money and make a difference. And people are saying, well, make that difference now. We've got other emergencies. Let's spend some of that money seriously to reorientate the economy for public good and in the public interest, rather than saying, let the market provide. My hope is that they'll be bold with pressure to do things that build a more people-centered and focused future. And you know, that comes down to us, it comes down to the 3CR listeners, the, the ACF and Friends of the Earth members, the trade unionists, it comes down to everybody that makes a difference and puts in. We need to build on the community that's been developed in the last couple of months and build on some of the smart ideas for a cleaner future. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. those laws were brought in was because the EPA didn't have enough power. It couldn't go into premises. It can't open up things, right? They are so limited in their powers under the old act. Why on earth would you let the old act continue? I mean, where is the Minister for the Environment? Is she across her brief? She said, oh, let's leave the EPA bill not to be implemented for another 18 months. Now, the recommendations that EPA have not already introduced are the very ones that, according to this report, come in on July 1, 2020. That's now gone to November 2021. So polluters, go for your life because we've got the same emasculated EPA that we had before. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, Radical Radio. And thanks for tuning in. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Matthew Solinsk here today. And we're talking about a recent paper that Matthew published uh, in conservation letters about how about um, interventions that we could use to reduce uh, cow flesh consumption for conservation benefit and what those interventions might be. So Matthew just explained that um, they went out and sought um, sought opinions and ideas from a bunch of experts, sixteen experts, and did a quite exhaustive. Um, survey and analysis process to identify a whole bunch of interventions that could be used um, and and uh, could be used to reduce beef consumption, particularly trying to find uh, interventions that were good within a short and intima- intermediate time frame. So around 10 years could be implemented and their effectiveness and their feasibility was, um, was good within that time frame. Um, and you identified in the paper, so in the paper, like there's a supplementary material, I think there was originally 90 different um, interventions that got 
brought down to about 40 or so. And then from those, you've actually identified 17 interventions um, with, a, with effectiveness and feasibility within a short and intermediate time frame. Uh, do you want to discuss, discuss some of that? And, um, and I'll, I'll highlight some specific ones. Sure. Um, but yeah, do you want to just talk about these interventions in general? Yeah, and I think I think the the again the diversity of the the interventions that are are brought and, and prioritized um, that were identified by these experts, I think it it's really important to you know for these individuals that are on these paths or potentially haven't started this path towards reducing or eliminating their meat consumption or specifically beef consumption, um, I think it's important to make it as easy as possible every step of that way. And so by having a diversity of interventions to uh, uh, targeting uh, these actions, um, every step of the, of the way can be made just a bit easier for these individuals to make that appropriate choice. Mm. And so uh, that's what I really liked about these different interventions is that they, they address different barriers to, uh, to reducing or eliminating meat consumption. So Yeah, there's a, um, there's a fantastic figure, um, figure three, that really works through the um, supply chain, I suppose, or the, the use of beef from first, you know, growing it to all the way through to um, consuming it and where the interventions fit into that framework right. or, or that, um, that flow. I think that was a really useful graphic for people yeah. to check out. You might be able to identify, okay, I'm really interested in targeting um, NGOs and how NGOs are approaching this and, and, there's, there's examples there for interventions that you, that people could really run with and target for NGOs. So a really useful graphic for um, people interested in advocating for the reduction of, of beef consumption. Um, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so a number of them do address these kind of knowledge and skills gaps that people might have. And, and really, um, I think the, that first grouping of, of, uh, of interventions kind of address that. But there's, as you move forward, you're thinking, you know, well, one, who are the actors that need to be involved in these diff different interventions? And so NGOs, which have been really reluctant, and there's plenty of research that demonstrates this, that have been reluctant to engage in this, uh, in this area, conservation NGOs, environmental NGOs, don't want to be seen telling their constituents what to be eating. Um, there is an entry point. So maybe it's just about messaging around uh, here are things you can actively do to reduce your impact on biodiversity. And the most effective thing is to reduce your meat consumption. There's also sometimes health, you know, uh, arguments will resonate better with individuals. Um, and so thinking about those different messaging, and I think you touched on this uh, uh, with your talk with Hank Rothgerber, uh, that different messages uh, obviously need to be tailored to different audiences. And so I think that's a really key intervention that comes out of, out of, the, uh, out of the list of interventions. And so, um, and social marketing campaigns can, are, 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 can be really effective in this regard. Mm. Um, and, and, and there's a whole history of how to better uh, tailor your message to your particular audience. Yeah. In terms of my you, segmentation, yeah. Yeah, and you, you sort of you sort of highlighted a few specific interventions that had high feasibility and high yeah. efficacy, and I just want to um, maybe get your thoughts on some of those. So there were four in particular, I think, that you highlighted that that seemed to have um, good be a good opportunity for to to get into uh, or to to test. One, the first one is manipulate perceived dynamic norms by framing information of plant-based consumption. Do you want to? And you you 
coded this as being highly feasible and having high efficacy. Can you take that sort of um, psychological jargon and um, <laughs> make it a little clearer for our audience? Yeah, okay? so basically it's, it's about promoting the message that a society's shifting towards a more plant-based diet. And by reinforcing that, that one, there's a, a number of people that are engaging in this, in, in eating plant-based diets or eating alternatives to meat, you can actually kind of jumpstart the process for other individuals to do that as well. And there's a number of papers that have come out over the last few years on looking at these shifting diets and messaging around that and how um, that will impact a person's decision in, in, in a restaurant or at a fast food place, wherever. Um, and I think, I think social norms and, and that, you know, the, the kind of, uh, social compliance type, uh, uh, interventions are very effective and this has been demonstrated time and time again. And so if we can use those, um, if, uh, if a, a restaurant who's engaged in this can use it, or if an NGO, environmental NGO or whomever can, can reinforce that, Hey, society, society's shifting and you need to come along with us. And that will help uh, potentially jumpstart somebody on that, on that journey to reduce or eliminating um, meat consumption. Yeah, sort of hij hijacking our, our desire to be, you know, move along with the crowd, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> if we know right. our neighbours, we know our neighbours doing something, we're more likely to maybe, um, yeah. yeah, try to And it's a nudge. That. I mean, the, it's, you know, it's a nudge towards something. It's a, it's a message nudge. Where there's other nudges now where, um, that have, have come out uh, in the last uh, year, uh, Emma Garnett and some uh, folks up at Cambridge have published a paper on nudging individual choices based on the availability of meat at a... Mm at a uh, uh, canteen. Ah, yes. I think I've seen that, that work. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the next one on the list was further development of beef alternatives that look, taste and smell like beef without the same negative impacts on the environment and animal welfare. And I, I suppose here we're talking about um, clean meats or lab-based lab meats. Yeah, that's right. And so here's something, here's an intervention that I don't think the conservation you know, uh, sector should necessarily be involved in. This is on its own path and it's, mm. it's uh, being, you know, the industry is getting involved and there's a lot of actors in this space that are continually producing alternative, you know, uh, really high quality, uh, realistic alternative meats. Um, and so I think it's a really important intervention. I think, I, you know, I think that the, the research is out yet, whether it's actually reducing meat consumption. Mm. Um, I think there are some studies that yeah, beyond meat sales were, were up in, in uh, a supermarket chain in, in uh, the UK, but meat consumption remained the same. But I think the, over time, we'll understand the efficacy of these interventions. And so I don't necessarily think they should be discounted right away. And I think the continued improved quality will lead to, um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah I, it is my hope that they lead to societal changes in terms of eating and reducing uh, meat consumption. Yeah, I think, yeah, so that, that one for me really, um, yeah, it seems like you say it's on its own sort of path and there's lots of investment going into it. Yeah. It's sort of, it, I think it's the price point. Once the price point comes down, right. then we'll see whether it is actually, um, is going to be making a difference. Yeah, and I, I, I was on, about a year ago, I was on, I was looking at some uh, kind of beef industry literature and mm. came across this video of somebody who is like kind of a market analyst for for the beef industry and he demonstrated himself eating a beyond burger and said this is 
realistic. And this is something that the beef industry is going to have to uh, keep in mind um, and potentially be invested in. Mm -hmm. So, because it will continue to be, uh, uh, yeah, continue to, to be improved, I guess. And we're seeing that, you know, with yeah. the largest sort of um, meat production companies in the world now investing in plant-based meat alternatives. Amazing. Uh, yeah. How fascinating. Yeah. I think in the next 10 years, it's, I think this, this is a real, this is going to be a real sort of um, interesting space to watch for yeah. sure. So another one, another one is advocate for major food service companies to commit to cutting purchases of beef and increasing purchases of beef alternatives. Yeah. So, um, and I think some of this has already started happening with like Tyson meals. Um, so Tyson food services, uh, really orchestrating a well-organized campaign and business case to these uh, food service providers by uh, demonstrating that people want uh, you know, more vegetarian-based meals uh, and are really, uh, here's a, a way to uh, uh, you know, make more money off people who, who want these type of, of, of food service. So I think that uh, and, and really engaging the NGOs to lead that campaign is, is really important. And uh, again, it has to be well orchestrated. It has to be, you have to have a, a business case and they have to be making, seem to be making money off of it. Otherwise they won't engage in that. So, but here's a way to circumvent any uh, government regulation, right? Um, if we can't expect governments to move on this, um, at least some of these large food service providers that are quite prevalent in the U.S., uh, mm. and, and here, I suppose, as well um, in Australia, but uh, uh, creating a structural change um, that will uh, kind of change people's uh, food-making decision without them even really having uh, really, uh, um, yeah, I guess really engaging in the, the cognitive decision to reduce uh, their meat consumption. Yeah, yeah. And I, I suppose lots of these um, are all sort of tied into one another. If we can do one of them, then the others actually become a little easier. So, for instance, this next one, which is the last of these sort of high efficacy um, and pretty good feasibility, is institutional reform to include beef-free meals in student, work and prison canteens. Yeah. And, you know, that's part of really manipulate perceived dynamic norms, so social norms. Once, If, if a whole bunch of people are, are only having the option to eat uh, vegan or vegetarian meals or beef free meals then it becomes normalized that eating meals without beef um, is a thing that people do and it feeds into each other that's um, right do you so. see any do you see any headway in this space this sort of institutional reform um you know i think there is there there have been some you know, there's some, some uh, efforts towards meat-free Mondays. Uh, I know there's certain universities that don't serve beef or other, or, or potentially other meat products as well. Um, and so, yeah, there are efforts towards this, but it can be more, um, obviously, more broad-based. Uh, we can engage in this more and push more institutions to do this. Yeah, um, prisons and think, hospitals, for instance, would be right. other, yeah. Yeah, there'd be, yeah. And so, for instance, um, we run a, a Victorian biodiversity conference every year. Um, mm. It's been going on for four years, uh, uh, four or five years now. Um, and it's, it's basically uh, the biodiversity conservationists from both social science, uh, ecological and biological sciences, kind of engaging together uh, and, and for, uh, basically for PhD students and ECRs. And so um, from the get-go, we've only had uh, vegetarian meals. Mm. 
Uh, we also provide vegan meals, but we, um, we don't have any meat products um, at the actual conference. And so here's a great way to you know, eliminate a whole, uh, a whole suite of, or you know, a, a quite a bit of, of meat consumption coming from a group of 400 people to getting together. And so yep. those, more of those things need to happen. And I think the point, the, the, the four examples you've picked and the four that, that are, have been prioritized by these experts um, are really great examples of kind of thinking about this in a, in a, a, a basically a framework of, of three different types of interventions. And so mm -hmm. we've got the technological change, which is the, the alternative uh, or the, the, the uh, beef lookalikes, the impossible beef or the, sorry, the impossible burger or, or um, um, what's the other one? The uh, um, anyways, impossible whole lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and uh, the second one would be that psychological change. So messaging, um, uh, nudges, uh, getting people to consider their, their decisions. And then that third one would be the structural changes. And so I think that's a really great way to think about behavior change interventions and how potentially we need all three of them um, to really reduce uh, beef consumption and, and meat consumption more broadly. Yeah, for sure. Um, and one thing that I noticed about these different, uh, the, the 17 interventions actually, is that usually individual individual um, interventions were labeled as high feasibility, low efficacy or a low effectiveness, sorry, and structural were low feasibility and high effectiveness. I want to see if you've got any thoughts on that. And I, I was actually thinking, could, could some aspects of this be combined where in certain individuals with decision-making powers in institutions are targeted specifically for, to make those institutional reforms? So you're bringing together individual and structural in the same sort of um, intervention. Right. And if you look at the literature and the literature that's coming out at the moment, just focusing in on those individuals, we, we think of our spheres of influence and an individual who's ahead of a, a conference or a, a company or an organization or some sort of, yeah, some sort of network of individuals can have real influence on that, on, uh, on, those, on those other individuals within that sphere. And so um, you're absolutely right by targeting uh, key individuals within these networks, we can potentially have much greater change throughout those networks yeah, mm -hmm. or, or organizations. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a really good point is targeting individuals within uh, uh, kind of uh, with societal influence. The, the one thing that I thought um, that, I, that I was sort of wanting uh, from the list was actually who does the intervention? So you've yeah. got who's the target, you've got sort of the feasibility, the effectiveness, all of that stuff. But if I, if I was, say, an advocate or an activist, mm -hmm. or I'm an institution or I'm an administrator, which of these interventions could I sort of go with? Which, which intervention could someone on the street pick up and start running with? I suppose people can make that decision themselves. But was there any sort of indication of who is best to lead or run certain intervention types? Yeah. So um, especially when you think about um, school lunches, for instance, mm. you know, the, um, during the Obama administration, we were close to uh, really reducing or considering sustainability elements and yeah. uh, within the school lunch program. And that would have targeted uh, beef, beef and meat consumption more. Uh, and um, as a result, but um, 
due to vested interests, that didn't happen, of course. Um, But it was a possibility of happening during that time. And there's certainly a real possibility of happening in the future. So I think focusing in on that and, and getting the right people, the right actors to push on that and, and provide some uh, resistance to changing that or to, to, to actually implementing that, um, I think is really important. And so, yeah, so I th- there was some focus on, okay, where can NGOs play a part? Mm. And I think I have that in that figure three of how NGOs yep. can influence not only um, their the individuals within their communities, but also, uh, uh, I guess, the communities and influence, but also um, how they can potentially directly engage uh, people within the food service industry, target the government, uh, potentially also help uh, farmers whose livelihoods are based on uh, on uh, beef production, uh, raising cows, uh, find alternative livelihoods or potentially lesser less impact livelihoods as well. Yeah. So um, yeah, there was some of that that came out, um, but I guess this is a real kind of uh, a you know, suite of different interventions that you could approach and say, okay, where does our organization or where do mm-hmm. I fit in as an individual and how can we promote, uh, promote these ideas or promote uh, reduction of, of beef consumption and meat consumption? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a it's a really valuable list for for people listening to have a look at and see where do you fit in if it's, if advocating for um, reduced beef consumption or meat consumption in general is something that you're interested in. Uh, certainly worth checking out. And I think on that we'll um, we'll we'll go to a, a another song. And this is um, Kiss by the Amazing Prince. And uh, Matthew, do you want to tell us a little bit about this song and why you chose this song? Yeah, Prince, I'm originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and, and Prince is also from Minneapolis and was always a, a favorite of, of, uh, of mine and, of course, Minneapolis and many people throughout the world. But, um, yeah, we're just having a hard time right now. We are, uh, there's a lot of heartache there and, um, um, yeah, kind of grieving for Minneapolis at the moment. So that's why I chose this song. Yeah, and then on that, we, so we're recording this Tuesday before the Sunday that was going to be... Um, played and Trump just as we came onto the uh, onto the show Trump um, announced that he would he would get get hard with protesters so um, yeah our hearts and our thoughts certainly go out to all the people around America who are who are um, going through some rough times at the moment and hopefully in the next five days things get better and not worse yeah. um, but here's Prince's kiss <laughs> Tell me I'm 
Did you know that polluting companies want to drill for oil and gas off the southwest coast of Victoria? Offshore drilling is bad for the climate, bad for marine life, and bad for tourism. These communities are already being hit hard by COVID-19 travel restrictions. And while we might not be able to flock to the coast to rally just yet, we can gather online to resist new fossil fuel developments. Stay in and paddle out this World Oceans Day and join us for a virtual paddle out to say no to new gas in Victoria. It's easy and creative to get involved. Jump onto melbourne.fo.org.au and check out how you can get involved in this fun and creative action at home. Together, we can work with the local community to ensure that we can stop these destructive new developments. See you online on World Oceans Day, June 8, as we stay in and paddle out for a climate justice future. Friends of the Earth is a proud sponsor of 3CR Community Radio. Uh, welcome back to Freedom of Species on 3CR, 855 AM or via podcast. Thanks for listening in. And we are talking to Dr. Matthew Selinski. And I apologize, I've been saying um, Matthew's last name incorrectly for the, for the show. Uh, so sorry about that, Matthew. We'll get it right uh, towards the end here. Um, and yeah, so that song was Kiss by Prince. And we've been talking about uh, a range of interventions that Matthew has um, identified through their research with experts in the field um, for intervening and reducing beef, beef consumption in a variety of ways, both individu for individuals, uh, through structural change, structural interventions. And um, I sort of want to, you, you just before we went on, on to that song, you mentioned something that I, I wanted to bring out a little bit more. Uh, and throughout the paper, you said a couple of times, um, the challenge of incentivized beef production and the difficulty this poses for reducing consumption. So that, that, that was something that is really difficult to deal with, incentivized beef production. Can you explain what incentivized beef production is and why that's a challenge for, for interventions that we take, particularly, say, structural um, interventions by the government, for instance? Yeah. And I should also st take a step back. And this was um, this paper was specifically discussing interventions that would be effective in the US. Oh, yes, and, sorry. Um, and so the little context on that, and in, in the US, the, there are a number of policies that incentivize beef production. Um, and so uh, I think that those type of policies will be very difficult to change. I mean, for instance, um, there is a, uh, a fund that basically uh, promotes beef production in the US. And so, um, you know, thinking about these different uh, messages that are sent out by the government promoting beef consumption, I think is, is something to be aware of and because there's invested interests uh, there. And, 
and so I think that that is a challenge. And so keeping that that meek. And, and if you look back at the history of the U.S., though, it's really fascinating. I mean, there was the desire to to make beef cheap so that everybody could eat beef, um, where it was seen as a thing of luxury um, in uh, uh, in other countries. Um, it very much became the identity of of, of an American meal. Mm. And so there's you know, and and I think it probably similarly uh, is, is, takes place here in Australia as well. It's part of that cultural identity. And so these, that identity, and, but also the, the policies that are, are within the government uh, reinforce the consumption of, of meat and, and beef more specifically. Yeah, and, and I suppose there's, there's just lots of, there, well, there's quite a few constituents who are heavily, as you said, heavily invested in the production of animals uh, for their livelihoods. And, and it's not clear yet how agricultural transition away from that mm. um, supports those people, supports people who are um, their whole lives and identities uh, around the production of beef or animals. And there was an incredible yeah. map just released in, in America by a, an, an organization, an advocacy group, uh, similar to the map that's in Australia that shows all of the different locations of animal production and animal slaughter. And you look at it in, on the US and it's just these huge swathe through sort of like Iowa and stuff like that. So many people are going to be um, sort of invested and, and part of that system that the government really wants to look out for those people as well. So right. it's going to be yeah. difficult to change that. And, and you know, really society should be looking out for those individuals. We want, we want people to find the alternative livelihoods. We want to you know, shut down forestry, whether it's here in Victoria or coal mining. Well, those individuals need jobs and need uh, a new form of identity to, uh, to yeah, uh, to, to engage with. And yeah. um, I think that will be a, a great challenge. Yeah, and this I is uh, an important point that we include in the paper as well, is that we don't want to be one seen to be limiting food uh, uh, I guess choices of mm -hmm. that that freedom of choice is so important. You know, uh, I think in in a individualistic so uh, society, um, and especially the U.S. Um, but also, um, and so reducing the the image of conservation, engaging this to limit food choice, I think is is important, um, especially across the conservation sector that potentially haven't been sold on this ideas of yet. Um, but in addition to that. Uh, we have to be prepared for, um, and I think every uh, movement or, or group that is engaging these type of interventions have to be prepared for pushback, mm -hmm. um, especially now given that climate change and conservation has been so tied up into um, uh, identities of, of political yeah. identities as well. So yeah. um, I think there has to be, yeah, we have to be um, potentially not... Um, yeah, yeah. I think for the conservation sector, they have to be careful. Yeah, and that actually dovetails perfectly into the last question that I have, or the last thought. So, this this work is really interesting to me because it sort of re really aligns with my own research interests, which is um, sort of thinking about how or why conservation has been silent or not not really engaging in the question of animal agriculture in terms of biodiversity um, or protection and how do we how do we actually make it or, or bring it into the conversation i mean one of the problem one of the problems or if we look at the intergovernmental panel on biodiversity um, 
their suggestions, you look at the the things that are most threatening to biodiversity and animal agriculture fits into about 70% of those. It doesn't contribute 70%, but it's part of about 70, 60% of the um, different different contributions. But we seem to focus in conservation on a much more narrow band. Like we say, okay, we've got this area to conserve. I'm going to look after this alpine park and I'm not going to necessarily think about this huge swathe of agriculture, animal agriculture that's been um, knocked down, trees have been knocked down, habitat's been taken um, to grow cows. And do we need to, like, how do we bring that conversation into conservation? Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, first off, I want to say that there has been some great work out there by kind of World Resources Institute looking at the impact of cows uh, on our cattle, cattle production, cattle, uh, beef cattle production uh, in the Amazon. Um, mm. Also, uh, uh, Trace, um, which is based in the UK, I believe, uh, has, has been identifying uh, who, what companies are buying soy in what counties within uh, within the Brazilian rainforests and and the Pantanal and how they're contributing to deforestation in those places and so there is this focus in on those areas and the production um, and but what we know about beef consumption is that we if we want to meet those SDGs or if we want to live in a more sustainable development goals excuse me if we want to protect uh, uh, biodiversity we need ultimately to reduce beef production and beef consumption. So uh, that's, a, that's a challenge. And I don't necessarily, um, as of yet, conservation is just slowly, just starting to engage in this. Mm-hmm. And if you think, you know, you know we're, we're kind of uh, focused in on, on protecting uh, threatened species yeah. at their location, at the locale that they exist in. Yeah. And so we're focused in on that, that narrow band as you described it. But if we want to address the drivers of, those, of that loss, then we need to start focusing in on not only the production, but also uh, the consumption as well. And so I think that's a real key element that, um, that potentially for, uh, for at least the last several decades, conservation has been missing out on and is now just starting to rectify and address. And I think, I think thinking about beef consumption is probably one of the most important behaviors to target is a really great first step towards, uh, towards addressing uh, yeah. those drivers, those, those fundamental drivers of biodiversity loss. Yeah, yeah the, the argument is so clear and there's so much evidence to support the argument that it, it, it's hard for people to sort of say or, go, or push back against it. It's, it's a really difficult, yeah. um, from a scientific perspective, very difficult to justify um, it in terms of biodiversity loss. That's right. And, and, but people do, people, yep. <laughs> you know, people are, are really sold on, well, we can just create more biodiversity friendly beef production. And while that, you know, from my own perspective, that is a, a, uh, an important step. And that's something that, that the conservation sector should be promoting. But ultimately, we can't live in this world where the, in the where the globe consumes a, an American, uh, uh, an American diet of beef. Like we yeah. just can't. And so where should we start reducing that? It's not in other areas. It's, it should be in the U S and in places like Australia and elsewhere. 
Absolutely. Uh, a great, a great thought to leave on. So thank you very much, Matthew. I really appreciate it. I do encourage people to go and check out the, um, the paper, the research. It's, it's very accessible. It's, it's not got uh, all of this jargon that you often find with uh, research papers. So if it's something that you're interested in, I would strongly encourage you to check it out. And, um, and we'll be back every, every Sunday, 1 to 2 p.m. Tune in on 8.55 a.m. to listen in live or we're streamed via the 3CR website or any of your, your podcasts. And, um, and thanks again, Matthew, for joining us. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Stay tuned for In Psychedelia. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.